Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. If, if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, we have one uh, in the pew rack right in front of you. In the, uh, there's a black uh, hardback Bible there, and you can find our text this morning on page 991 uh, in those black pew Bibles. So if you don't have one, uh, I'd encourage you to grab one out of the pew in front of you and flip to page 991. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning from God's Word. As you're turning there, I want to invite you, if you are able, if you would stand with me uh, in honor of the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And let's pray together. Father God, Scripture tells us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We ask for your Spirit's help this morning to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that your word would do its work in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In 2013, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America put together a committee to update the church's hymn book just a few years ago. One popular modern hymn that we sing here quite often in Christ Alone was going to be included in this new hymn book, but the committee, after reviewing the lyrics of the hymn, wanted to use an amendment to some of the words. As most of you know, the original lyric of the song goes, And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The amended version that the committee submitted and wanted to use sang like this, And on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. What's the big deal, right? Well, Keith and Kristen Getty, the writers of this hymn, would not approve the amendments because it significantly altered the theological intent of the song. To remove the wrath of God uh, from in the guiltiness of sinners uh, is in part to remove uh, the necessity and the need of the gospel. So, the committee decided to drop the hymn altogether from their liturgy. Another hymn that all of us are familiar with, uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, written in the late 1700s by 
uh, a former slave trader ship captain, uh, John Newton, has undergone some major changes in the last century. In some hymns, in some hymn books, uh, if you read the, the words that are familiar to us, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, have been amended and changed to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Professor Brian Reagan, uh, a lay Roman Catholic, <clears throat> laments the change uh, in this particular hymn in an article that he published in 1994. Here's what Reagan says. While Newton believed that human beings were wretches in desperate need of a savior, these 20th century adapters clearly believe that they and the congregations who will sing their words are perfectly nice people, almost nice enough to be Unitarians. They are not so bad. Certainly, they're not wretches. They have simply lost their way. They are not wicked. They're merely handicapped. And it's a handicap from which they hope to recover. He goes on in that article to say that the new alterations undermine the author's central point, the nature of God's grace. Grace is amazing because it saves wretches, not because it puts a final polish on perfectly nice people. The grace of God does what no other power can do. It redeems sinners. What is it about our inability to agree with God on the totality and the depths of our depravity? It seems like we don't want to admit the totality and the deepness of our own sinfulness because we know it stands in stark contrast with the holiness and righteousness of God. If we agree that God is a holy and a just God, then that is bad news for you and for me. It means that we're guilty and that we deserve punishment and even death for our sin. But we're reminded this morning in our passage that the good news of the gospel of Jesus is precisely so good because the bad news is so bad. What makes the gospel good is that the bad news is so very bad. The reason why I chose the text this morning uh, is because it peeks forward in time just a little bit from where we are in the book of Acts. So if, if you remember from last week, really the last two weeks, uh, in the book of Acts, chapters 7 and 8, we have now bumped into and met this man named Saul. We know Saul so far uh, that he is one who approved the martyrdom of uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church. Saul is also a great persecutor of the early church. We read in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, I think this was two weeks ago, uh, Acts 8, verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul took it as his personal mission. It was his personal mission to round up all of the Christians that had scattered due to the death of Stephen and to go and to drag them back to Jerusalem to put them in prison and even to put them to death. 
Yet God in his amazing grace does not leave Saul alone. We'll see this morning that God's amazing grace and in his sovereign plan, he took the one man whose personal mission it was to stamp out the spread of Christianity, to change his heart, to give him a new name, and to put him on mission to spread the very same gospel that he was trying to stamp out to the ends of the known world at that time. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is going to be about. Not to give anything away, but that's what it is. It's missionary journey after missionary journey of the Apostle Paul spreading the gospel to the ends of the known world at the time. Brothers and sisters, just like God in his amazing grace didn't leave Saul alone, God in his amazing grace has not left you and me alone. And just like he had a plan for Saul, he has a plan for you, he has a plan for me, and he has a plan for your lost friends and your lost family members and your lost co-workers that you are to be sharing the gospel with on a day-to-day basis. These words that we read this morning, these words that, that uh, we're going to study this morning were written by. They were written by the very hand of the one man who was the worst of all sinners. And we're going to see that this morning. And that brings us to our first point in the text. Point number one in your notes. God's grace strengthens sinners to service. God's grace strengthens sinners to serve. Oftentimes when we think of service in the church or we think of being asked to perform some type of service in the church, particularly if it has to do with evangelism and discipleship, a lot of times we feel like it's an obligation. We feel like we ought to do it. We're we're obliged to do it. We might even think that service in the church and things like evangelism and discipleship are only for those who are super spiritual. (laughs) Those Christians that we put up on a pedestal and and say, you know, they're really in tune with God. They're really in touch with, with Jesus. And so I'll leave the evangelism to them. However, when we look at the Bible, not just in our passage this morning, but especially in our passage this morning, we see that service in the church, we see that things like personal evangelism and, and discipleship are a blood-bought privilege given to you from Jesus. It's a blood-bought privilege given to you from Jesus. Look down at verse 12. Paul says in these opening verses that he is thankful. He says, I thank him, Jesus Christ, for three things. He lists three things there. For strength, for being judged to be faithful, so faithfulness, and lastly, for the appointment to serve. Now there are a lot of things that we could say and dissect about these three particular things, but here's the main point Paul is making in verse 12. The source of all three of these things, the source of your strength, the source of your faithfulness, and the source of of your appointment to ministry is Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ Himself. Paul knows that when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus, we all need divine help. We can't do it on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. For him, for Paul, it didn't matter 
how smart he was. He was a pretty smart dude. It didn't matter how zealous he was, and he was certainly very zealous. It didn't matter how eloquent or how trustworthy he was. What makes a person faithful and fruitful in gospel ministry is the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit empowering us to be obedient to God's command. We cannot do this on our own. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourself struggling to find joy and thankfulness in your service this morning to our Lord Jesus, particularly in the areas of evangelism and discipleship, remember this. This word is for you. Gospel ministry is not finally about your abilities and capabilities. It's about depending on the all-sufficient and all-powerful grace of Jesus Christ. You are given by King Jesus, an impossible task to accomplish on your own. You think of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. God leads the prophet down into this valley, and basically it is a graveyard. There is an army of bones that are just completely dry and rotted, have been dead for who knows how long. No life left in these bones. And God gives Ezekiel, I love this story, God gives Ezekiel this impossible command. It almost sounds crazy. God says, Ezekiel, preach to those bones. Open your mouth and preach to those bones and tell them to come back to life. Put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. There you're standing in the middle of an open graveyard. And... You want me to do what, God? Preach to these bones and tell them to come back to life? I don't know about that. (laughs) Is that going to work? Right? That's not what Ezekiel does. Ezekiel is faithful by the grace of God, and he opens his mouth and he proclaims, Bones, come to life. You know, might feel kind of silly as he said it, but then something happens. The earth begins to quake. And bone and bone start coming together, joining together to make skeletons. And, and then this wind comes, this mighty rushing wind, which in the Old Testament and well, in the New Testament as well is, is this symbol of the Spirit. The Spirit moves among those dead, dry bones and brings them to life again. Now, who was it that brought life to those dead bones? Ezekiel? No. God used him as a means, and in the power of his Holy Spirit, he called dead things back to life again. In your areas of ministry and service that are given to you by God, you are to be completely and utterly dependent on that same power. If you're sharing the gospel with your children or your grandchildren or the students who sit in your classroom or your next door neighbor or your coworker who shares the cubicle next to you or the dude who works on your tractor or the guy who works on your car or the waitress at your favorite restaurant, on and on and on, you come into contact with lost people every day and Christ has commanded you in the power of the Holy Spirit to go to them, to share the gospel with them and to call those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to repentance and faith and to find life again. You cannot do that task alone. It's impossible. Your words alone cannot save 
anyone. My words this morning cannot save anyone, but the Holy Spirit can. And He is the one that's doing the work through us. He is the one who is strengthening us to carry out this ministry that King Jesus has called us to. He is the one who not only makes you faithful, but also brings fruit from your faithful work. It's what Christ has called you to do. Now, gospel ministry that we're all called to, not just those of us who are on paid staff here at the church, uh, we're all called to be gospel ministers full-time. There are certain areas where we can kind of fall into dangers here. And I want to talk about these two things. These are things that I've seen in my own heart uh, as I've served here at the church. These are are things that I've observed uh, in the hearts of those who who I minister along with. There are two different kinds of sides of the horse that we can fall off on. And Paul guards us from both of those things. The first thing is pride. The first thing is pride. And on the other side of the horse is feelings of unworthiness and despair. Okay? Uh, you'll see, and I hope that it becomes clear, that, uh, that those, both of those things, even though they seem to be so different, actually at the heart, the root issue in the heart, it's the exact same problem. And the problem is, is that we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and we've stopped depending on Him and His power to help us to be faithful and fruitful ministers of the gospel. And we've put our eyes on ourselves. And if we do that, we're going to wind up in one of these two places inevitably. We're going to wind up in pride or we're going to wind up in despair. So, how do we know if we've become too prideful? It's a good question. If we've become too prideful, we begin to think that we deserve recognition and appreciation for our ministry because of our service in the church. We can become aggravated with people when they don't listen to us. We begin to feel as if we are personally being rejected when they reject the gospel of Jesus. It's not Jesus being rejected, it's me. They're not listening to me. Or God forbid, we might even think things like this. You know, this church sure is lucky to have somebody like me. This church sure is lucky to have somebody to serve like I serve. Brothers and sisters, if that's you this morning, you would do well to remind yourself that we are completely dependent upon and we should be graciously humbled by the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus. We need to remind ourselves that ministry in this church and in your home and at your job and wherever it is that you go is a gracious gift from God. And your strength to do that ministry faithfully comes from the Holy Spirit. You should remind yourself, as Paul does in these verses, that we don't deserve the appointment to serve in gospel ministry. We don't deserve it. We'll talk about why we don't deserve it in just a minute, but let's talk about the other side of the horse. If we take our attention, if we take our focus off of Christ and off of His empowering us to do this gospel ministry and we put it on ourselves, we can become prideful. But probably more often than not, where we will wind up is in despair. We will wind up in despair. We know that we have given up or we have given into despair when we give up. When we just give up on people. 
And any of you who have shared the gospel for any amount of time with somebody or prayed for somebody to, to, to have a new heart because of the gospel for any amount, of, and I don't just mean for you know, a couple of days or a couple of hours, I mean decades after decades after decades of sharing faithfully with that person and praying fervently with that person only to be rejected time and time and time and time again, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, your prayers become less passionate. They may become less frequent. And eventually, we find ourselves saying things like, you know, there's just no way this person's going to believe the gospel. They're too far gone. They're too far gone. It, you know, I, I've done my best to preach the gospel to them and they know exactly what I'm going to say. And some of you guys have so faithfully shared the gospel with some of your lost friends and family that they can even repeat back to you exactly what you're about to say to them. But they still reject it. Brothers and sisters, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Christ. And the gospel just hasn't yet taken root in their heart. And we might even find ourselves tempted to say things like, well, if they ever want to talk about it, they know where to find me. They know where I stand. And we shut our mouths never to bring up the gospel again. And we leave it all in their court, so to speak. Brothers and sisters, if that's you this morning, if you've ever experienced something like that, you've given into despair. You've taken your eye off of the amazing grace of Christ to save even the vilest of sinners and you've put your eye on yourself and on your own capabilities and on your own eloquence. Well, if that's you, if that's you this morning, there's good news for you as well. For those of you who are fighting, who are in the trenches, and you are fighting despair in ministry, there is good news for you this morning. And that's what our next two points are. <clears throat> so, point two. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. No one is ever outside of the reach of God's grace. Look down at verses 13 through 15. I want to pick out a, another list. There's another list here. Paul reminds us of who he once was before uh, he came to Christ, when he was Saul. Let's look at who Paul was when he was Saul. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. Some of your translations may say a violent aggressor. That's actually a better translation than what the ESV says here, insolent opponent. He was not just, you know, ho-hum about the gospel. He, he wasn't just, you know, whatever about Jesus. No, he was violently opposed. He was violently opposed to the gospel and to Christ. Look there in, in verse 13 again. He acted in ignorance and unbelief. And in verse 14, we see that he is the worst of all sinners. The worst of all sinners. If anyone deserved to be outside of the reach of God's grace, if anyone in the history of the world was too far gone, it was Saul. But look at verse 13 and 14. Let's read it in its entirety. But. By the way, that's my favorite word in the Scripture. <laughs> that word but. It's a small, short word, but that word changes everything. Right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive again. Right? Uh, you were once blasphemers against the Holy Spirit. You were, you were once in rebellion against God. Active, open rebellion. But God, 
being rich in mercy, right? That word but changes everything. And, and Paul uses that word here, and it changes everything. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Well, let's don't misunderstand Paul here. Paul is not saying Jesus saved me because I didn't know any better. <laughs> he, he's not saying that when I was in my sin, I, I, I just didn't, I didn't understand what it was that I was doing. I didn't get it, right? That, that's not what Paul's saying here. That would, that would be like if, if you get pulled over for speeding and you say, officer, I'm sorry, I didn't know that the speed limit was only 35, right? I, I was ignorant of the law. I, I didn't know that the speed limit was 35. When the officer looks back at you and says, 75 and a 35 is not ignorance. Now, that's never happened to me. I think it's happened to Richard once or twice. It's never happened to me. 75 and a 35 is not ignorance. What is it? It's rebellion. It's rebellion. It wasn't, it wasn't like Jesus looked down from heaven at Saul and said, ah, poor guy, you know, I mean, he, he just doesn't get it. That's not at all what, what Paul is saying here. Ignorance is not an excuse for our sin. So what is Paul saying? What does he mean when he say that he acted in ignorance? Well, I think in order to understand that, we have to understand that in Timothy's church, where Timothy here is the pastor, uh, there were people in that church, they were called Judaizers. And these Judaizers were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, you had to obey certain aspects of the Mosaic law. So, for example, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to eat these certain foods. Or if you're going to be a Christian, you have to wear these certain kinds of clothes and on and on and on. And Paul is saying here to us, hey, if keeping the Mosaic law could save anybody, it would have saved me. If you're talking about earning your own righteousness before God by your own works, I would have been in the front of the line. If anybody can be saved by obedience in the law, it would have been Paul. Paul kept the law. Paul even put people to death who were teaching others that it's not about the law, but it's about grace. When Paul was ravaging the church, he thought that he was doing God a favor by trying to stamp out the movement of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, keeping the law and trying to earn your own righteousness before God by being a good person will get you this far. It'll get you to ignorance and unbelief. That's as far as you can get yourself trying to earn your own salvation, trying to earn your own righteousness before God. It will get you to ignorance and unbelief. Paul is teaching us here that we need righteousness that comes from apart from the law. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Look at verse 15. It's a wonderful verse. It's kind of the, the, the core of, of this paragraph that we're reading. It says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Brothers and sisters, we are all sinners. And our best attempts at serving God in our own strength will get us nowhere. It'll get us nowhere. 
There may be someone here this morning who's never believed in the gospel. You hear me saying these words like good news and, and gospel, and, and you may not know, uh, understand what those things mean. And if that's you this morning, we are so glad that you are here. Maybe you came this morning because you wanted to see what this Jesus guy was all about. Maybe you came this morning because you were curious about what Christians believe and you want to know a little bit more. And if, if that's you this morning, let me say that this word, this message of the gospel, this good news is for you. It's for you. You see, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us in here. Nobody in this room has life completely figured out. Nobody in this room has it all together. We may put on our Sunday best and we may look really nice, but on the inside, just like you, we are, apart from Christ, lost and hopeless. Scripture says that we're all sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve God's punishment because He is holy and He is just. But the good news this morning is that that same God, that same God who, who will punish you because of your sin, is also patient. And He is gracious. And He sent His only Son, Jesus, to come and to live a perfect life that nobody in this room could ever even dream of living. And He did it in your place. And He died on the cross for our sins. And as He hung on that tree, the wrath of God, He absorbs the wrath of God because of the sins of His people. And there He died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sins. But the great news is, is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again from the dead and he defeated sin and he defeated death. And the scripture promises to those who would repent, who would turn away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, no matter what their life has been like. It doesn't matter what your life was like before Christ. You're never outside of the reach of God's grace. And if you would just put your faith in Christ and trust in Him, the Scripture says He will save you. Why would you die in your sin? Why would you die in your sin when Christ has made a way for you to live? That's what makes God's grace so amazing. Is that it's for sinners. It's not for the well. It's not for the people who have it all together. It's for sinners like you and like me. And just like Paul. All right, lastly, point three. God's patience leads to our repentance. God's patience leads to our repentance. I love what Paul does in, in verse 16. Uh, look at it one more time, down in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Right, there was a purpose to God's plan for Paul. He, he showed mercy and grace to Paul for this purpose. That in me, as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The worst of sinners can find mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. As we'll see next week in, in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle, Saul, or the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he had a pretty radical uh, conversion story. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Richard, maybe it was last week, I can't remember exactly, uh, he, he talked about how some people just have these 
really crazy and radical testimonies. Well, if Paul were in the room, he could say, I can trump that, right? We'll see in Acts chapter 9 that he's on his way to Damascus to stamp out more Christians who are living there, and all of a sudden, a light comes from the heavens that blinds Paul and lays him quite literally on his back. And as he's laying there, Jesus steps out of heaven and calls him out by name. Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you? (laughs) He says, why do you persecute me? Jesus himself steps out and calls Paul out by name. Over the next few days, Paul is left blind and helpless until Jesus sends his disciple Ananias. Ananias, by the way, lived in Damascus. He was on Paul's or Saul's list. Right? This is one of the very men that Saul was on his way to Damascus to try to stamp out and kill. Jesus sends him to Paul so that he might be saved. Isn't God's grace and power so amazing? Not everyone has a radical testimony like that. But why was Paul saved in this way? Why did Jesus save Paul in the way that he did? Is it just because Jesus has a flair for the dramatic and the ironic? He's like, ah, this would make a good story. Watch this. I don't think that's it. Paul says here that Jesus made an example out of him. He made an example out of him. He, he, he goes, and it, it's, it's as if Paul is saying, if God can transform a wicked sinner like me, if, if the grace of Jesus applied to the life of a sinner like me can turn my life around and save me, then there is no limit on what the grace of God can do. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. Jesus, in His grace, can save you. And He will. Notice, though, that Paul's conversion didn't happen in Jerusalem. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It didn't happen at the stoning of Stephen. It it, it didn't happen when Paul was going from house to house to drag Christians out and to throw them in jail. He waited until he was on his way to Damascus. And this teaches us something about the character of God. Namely, it teaches us about his patience, his forbearance. The judgment of God is sure, and it might be slow by our standard of time. Now, it it, it works in God's perfect time, but to us, God's judgment uh, may seem slow. And why is it that God's judgment is slow? Well, it's so that the sinners who are under God's judgment have time to repent. Philip Ryken, a, a pastor and a, a commentator, says this about this verse. It says, in his grace, God is willing to put up with a whole lot from people. <laughs> in his grace, God is willing to put up with a whole lot from us. And the reason that he does that is that he gives us time to repent. He gives us time to see the depths of our own sin. And He gives us time to to understand and to hear about His amazing, transforming grace. This should be an encouragement to you. God is patient with us the same way that He was patient with Paul. 
You think that you're outside of the reach of God's grace? You, you, do you think that your past is, is so stained and so laden with, with guilt and sin that there's no way that God could ever love somebody like you? Do you think that about some of your lost friends and, and family members? Well, look at Paul. Christian, are you struggling to carry out the ministry that God has graciously given to you? Are, are, are you prone to despair and to discouragement when, when time after time after time again, your lost friend or family member or coworker or whoever it is rejects the gospel again and again and again? Be patient. Be patient like your heavenly Father is patient. Be patient with them like He was patient with you. Don't give up on people. If you've shared the gospel with somebody for a thousand times, share it a thousand and one times. Share it a thousand and two times. Share it five thousand times, five thousand and one times. However many times it takes, never close your mouth. Never just say, well, I'm leaving the ball in their court because that's giving up. Keep sharing the gospel because, because you, you are the means by which God is going to accomplish His perfect plan for that person. That's the ministry that God has given us. God doesn't need us to share the gospel. God doesn't need us to pierce the hearts of cold and dead sinners. He can do it on His own. But because of His mercy and because of His grace, He takes sinners like you and me and He uses us as the means by which He takes the gospel to those who are dead and He calls them back to life again. Don't ever give up on people. Keep praying. Keep sharing the gospel. God will accomplish His perfect plan even in the life of the worst of sinners. He did it in your life. He did it in my life. He'll he'll do it in the life of the worst of sinners. Well, I began this morning talking about John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. Some of you guys may know or have read something about John Newton. His life was absolutely fascinating. And I I really encourage you, if you've never read about him or ever read any of his works, I I encourage you to seek those things out. Uh, They are of great encouragement. Uh, Newton talked about all the time how his past would just haunt him. He was was the captain of a slave trade ship. And uh, he, uh, throughout the course of his life, uh, remembered the groans and the sounds of the chains rattling together, together of the men and women and children that he was taking to be sold into a lifetime of slavery. And he talked about how all the time those groans uh, and the sound of those shackles and chains would haunt him. But later on in life, as he grew older, his health began to fail. And famously, he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I do remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Brothers and sisters, let that be your testimony this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning thankful that you don't leave us in our sin, that you don't give up on us, But Father, in your perfect patience and in your perfect time, you call sinners to repentance and faith in you. Lord, I pray.
that we would not be prone to pride or to discouragement in our ministry as gospel uh, preachers. Lord, I pray that uh, as we share our faith with those in our lives that you have entrusted to us to share the gospel with, that we would not give up. But Father, that we would not take our eyes off of you but, and, and put our eyes on ourselves, but Father, that we would entrust ourselves to your Holy Spirit's power, that we would be faithful and that we would be fruitful in the ministry that you've called us to. Lord, I pray for those who are here who may not know you, who, who may not have surrendered their life to this, to this grace uh, that we've talked about this morning, that we've seen in your word. Lord, I pray that, that you would show them that you're, you're, their sin, that you would show them how magnificent and how powerful and how transforming your grace is. We pray, Father, that you would give them new hearts with faith in you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.